0: Well, good evening, everyone. Wow, it's great to see you and hope you've had a wonderful day. And uh, welcome to March, if nobody's, if hadn't crossed your thoughts yet, right? Here we are in March, and um, we're looking forward to a great month ahead. And uh, spring, spring fever, if you haven't already got it, is uh, certainly going to be around here soon. Let me remind you, just a couple announcements again from the Weekly Connect. Make sure you pick up on some things happening um, this week Grief Share begins. That's Ron and Diane Tuesday. So we'll be praying for that Tuesday morning and Tuesday evening. Is that still the plan? Okay. And um, if you have any questions about that, see Ron and Diane. And uh, any way you can help, that'll be great. That's about a 13 week event, usually 12, 13. Actually. It's a now it's into it. Okay. Okay. So it'll run on into May. Is that, is that what I'm guessing? Okay. So looking forward to hearing good things <laughs> from Grief Share. Always a great ministry and outreach. Uh, Wednesday evening, we'll be back here with our question and answer series that's going on on Wednesday nights, and we're having a lot of interesting questions and great answers that are coming as part of that. So if you haven't already, come join us on Wednesday nights. Um, we've got some, uh, some more interesting questions to address this week, I know. Thursday, Day 5 Fellowship, if you're involved in that, and that'll be winding down here in March. That ends uh, the last Thursday of March. So uh, we'll put that on hold until we come back and do it again next, uh, next November, Lord willing. Next uh, Saturday night, anybody looking forward to this? Turn the clocks up an hour. Well, that'll, that'll make Sunday morning exciting, won't it? So, um, so don't forget about that. And then um, that's Saturday. Next Sunday is a busy day around here. Um, normal morning worship service, and Pastor Nick will be preaching again. And then the teens and middle school have an afternoon event that lasts all afternoon. They're going to have lunch here, and they've got activities and events planned uh, all afternoon. And then all of us are back here at 4 o'clock for a welcoming fellowship for the Decker family. And I'm uh, looking forward to that. And make sure you sign up if you're coming. They'll just help in the planning because the church will provide the food. They're asking families, if they will, just bring a dessert. And then next And then after that's over next Sunday evening, uh, we'll be back here at 5.30 in here for the showing of the movie Life Mark. And uh, some details again about that here. And uh, so uh, it's going to be an exciting day. Of course, not being here, uh, since the movie's going on, we'll not not have evening Bible study fellowships. So we'll catch back up on the 19th. Yeah, By the time we get back, it'll be the end of March uh, to this. Uh, Easter stuff is starting to crawl into our schedule for sure, Children's Easter Celebration on April first, and of course that just leads into uh, the week of Easter that's coming up quickly upon us, and lots of other things here too. So make sure you keep up, keep up with life around here with one of these. Remind you that children's ministry is looking for some helpers for junior church in the mornings. Somebody who can teach one Sunday a month, and uh, they'd love to get teams. So uh, that would be great. So see Christy Hazelwood uh, if you have um, uh, desire to find out more, interesting and helping. That would be something that would be a great help to our to our ministry uh, as we're watching our church grow, we're also watching our children's ministries grow. And uh, that's a great thing, no, no problem with that, but it just means uh, put some more demand on getting some workers and some things that are there. Well, uh, tonight we take a little bit of a turn toward getting our thoughts wrapped around a little more of a church history. We start uh, tonight uh, looking at the distinctives of Baptist history. And how many of you here are Baptist? Right? Right, a lot of you, Brother Ray's not going to raise his hand, but uh, he's our brother, man. We love it. Um, and, and maybe some of you, like me, have Baptist uh, heritage, probably, maybe back uh, you know, uh, in one of the Baptist denominations. So uh, there's a lot of history here that, that I'm convinced that most people, most Baptists, do not know, and, uh, and I think should. So that's one reason we're going to be doing this study for the next uh, several times, is work our way through some of the history of the Baptists. And uh, fill you in on some things and names you did not know. And hopefully um, more appreciative of where the Baptist denomination um, originates and where it stands. And a little bit about the history of our church. We've got to finish there, right? We'll narrow it down to that point. Well, let's pray as we start. And uh, we'll try to use our time quickly and use it well. Father, thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. What a wonderful assembly it was this morning of the congregation to, to stand here and to sing, to praise, and to worship together. To hear your word proclaimed and its truths brought before us in our ears, and our eyes, and our hearts. And I pray that uh, you will use those events of this day and our time tonight uh, to help us to grow deeper in our faith and our understanding of issues and things related to our church and to our faith and to our ministries. I pray that you'll bless each of the Bible study groups tonight for all the ages and that you'll be honored uh, as each group gathers and and, uh, meets to... Uh, spend time around your word. I pray that you'll bless the evening. Bless our church as we move forward into an exciting time of year. And uh, we pray that you will allow us uh, the capacity to be a bold and strong witness for you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been, we've been you know, in this topic of a little bit of survey of church history and, and uh, denominations now for many weeks. We started this thing way back, in, uh, right back toward the end of last year, October, November last year. So we spent a lot of time in different denominations. And my intent all, all along has been to spend the most time in, in, the, in the Baptist part of it. It's yes, more than just one night lesson. So this is a little bit of a bridge um, lesson tonight. We're going to recap some things and kind of set the stage. And then next week we'll enjoy the activities and events of the church. And then we'll come back the following week and really start to crawl some details and talk about uh, uh, going back to the beginning of the Baptist denomination. So I'm calling this preparing for the Baptist, because at this point in history we're going to be looking at there are uh, there are no Baptists by name, and um, uh, so we're going to that's kind of be our intent tonight. We're going to lead us right up to the point, and then uh, come back next time, and we'll start talking about more details related to Baptist. I've used this map several times in our study to kind of remind us a little bit of the history of Europe. Now, Europe, of course, becomes the becomes a very important part of the of the of Christianity as a whole, uh, following the centuries of Christ, um, the conversion of Constantine, the Roman emperor, and, and, uh, in the early 300s, and then a proclamation that allowed for Christianity to be accepted in the kingdom, no longer to be, you know, tortured and, and uh, persecuted. And then for many centuries, what happens is the church out of Rome continues to grow in power and influence. In beginning of the 400s, you have this formalized Roman Catholic church, we'll call it. And that church, for centuries upon century, will continue to grow in influence, in power, and in wealth. And um, it just becomes very corrupted through that whole process. Fast forward 1,000, maybe 1,100 years, you start to find men who stand up and go, no, that, what, the, what the Catholic church is teaching is not right. Um, it's not biblical. And uh, many of those men paid with their lives because of the stance they made. But they inspired a generation, and then the next generation would inspire. And you see things begin to transition. So just kind of a quick review of some of these. We, we turn our attention to the late 1300s, and a man named John Wycliffe, a uh, professor at Oxford University, uh, began to proclaim the need for a Bible in the language of the people. He's in England. And what was the Bible? It was a Latin Bible. It was a Latin Bible in England and all through Europe. And he began to proclaim there needed to be a Bible that the people could read, and services need to be done in, some, in a language they could understand. Imagine going to a church service. Have you've been to a church service where you don't speak the language I have in, in several situations, you just become a spectator. You go, oh, I guess he's doing this, or I guess that's what this means, or, you know, you just get bits and pieces. And in the process, Wycliffe, Wycliffe's voice in the late 1300s becomes really the first of many to follow. He is often called the morning star of the Reformation. Following Wycliffe, the, his teachings would, after his death, would be picked up uh, all the way across to the other side of Europe by a man named Jan Hus. Um, and uh, he, was, he was in Prague, and he too, as a Roman Catholic priest— um, read the writings of Wycliffe a generation later and began to say, hey, he makes a lot of sense. Because what was happening, people were starting to look at the Bible more as to what it actually said versus what the Roman Catholic Church taught. And so Huss becomes the next outspoken voice. And he is brought before the Roman uh, council, uh, is accused of being a heretic. and. And um, quite quickly disposed of at the stake, burned alive. Gives his life for the cause there. Uh, his followers and those who agreed with him would, would later be called Hussites for obvious reasons. Uh, but they too, the seed of understanding the dis- distinctions between what the Roman Catholic Church taught and what the um, Bible said were becoming more obvious to people. We fast forward then to 1517. So we come out of the 1400s uh, with Wycliffe and Huss in our shadow, and then we look to Luther. And in October 1517, it's Luther who um, nails the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And there he, he writes out his complaints, um, 95 of them to be exact, related to Catholic doctrine, particularly Regarding something called an indulgence where you could buy your way out of sin you could buy forgiveness Luther had a problem with that and he wanted the church and he's a Roman Catholic priest also teaching and As a professor of theology at the University of uh, Wittenberg, and he wants to have a discussion it's time to bring these issues and Help to get the church back on track, but he of course Is rejected by the Roman Catholic, uh, Catholic authorities and um, begins in Germany, the Reformation there. Huss had already started it in many ways earlier, many decades earlier. Luther begins one now in Germany. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli, a man of similar uh, contemporary of Luther, uh, will find himself in Switzerland, in Zurich, uh, doing much the same thing. As a Roman Catholic priest, he starts to read and say, it doesn't work, began to preach the reforms needed for the church. He, too, pretty much became the, the, an outlaw of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, began uh, much of the reform movement there in Switzerland. Another name who's not a reformer of such uh, outside the church, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, was from Holland. He will propose changes from within the Roman Catholic Church. He's one of the few or at least one of the ones we know of by name, who doesn't leave the Roman Catholic Church. He actually stays in it, but he becomes a very influential voice for some of these reforms that are needed. He will die a Roman Catholic, but uh, the story of Erasmus goes much deeper than just his voice, and we'll come across that some future lessons yet. Um, in the meanwhile, in England, by the time you get in the 1500s, you've got King Henry VIII, who we'll spend a little bit of time talking about here. He formally separates the, the Catholic Church in England from the Roman authorities, from the Pope. Uh, and in, in doing that, he created uh, what would be called the Church of England, as we know it today. Again, in our, in, in our country, we know it as the Episcopal Church. Um, and so the Church of England uh, becomes another, uh, at least dissenter to the purity of the Roman Catholic teaching of a pope being the head of the church. Uh, but again, uh, the separation by Henry VIII is one we'll spend a little more time with just in a moment. A contemporary of Henry VIII is William Tyndale, and we'll spend a little more time with him, too. Tyndale is the one who picks up the mantle from Wycliffe uh, several, several, uh, several generations earlier, and he will pick up the need for translating the Bible into English, and he will do that. He will have to escape England to do that. He'll have to come to Germany, where he finds some refuge. But he becomes a man hunted by the Roman Catholic Church, and, in, and eventually will give his life. We'll spend a little more time with him in just a moment. John Knox, of course, in Scotland, becomes uh, another Roman Catholic priest who begins to speak boldly against the, uh, the teachings and doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church and the need for a separation, and he will be the, the founder of what we know today as the Presbyterian denomination. And in the process of all of this, you've also got John Calvin, who will come into the picture later in the 1500s. Uh, he will work out of Switzerland also, out of Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, his writings and his preaching and his, uh, uh, his work as an educator will lay much of a foundation for the Reformed uh, Church of, of Switzerland and indeed through Europe. And much of his influence is still felt today. Uh, Christians who, who will give themselves the label Reformed uh, will in some way or some depth uh, identify with Calvin's teaching. So you got the the Reformation happening. And probably if we had to just narrow down a a long list of events that happened, we'd say these, these three things are important. The Bible became more accessible. More people began to read it. More people began to take up the calls of putting the Bible in the language of the people. Everyone needs to hear this. The preacher needs to preach, and the services need to be done in the language of the people, not in Latin. So the expansion of the Bible, and of course, that was done primarily through the printing press of Johann Gutenberg. In the middle of 1400s when it was invented, uh, now the Bible's being produced at much greater speed and much less cost. And more people have access to a Bible. So the Bible becomes a central part of this. A very corrupt Roman Catholic Church. Again, voices from inside the Roman Catholic Church were saying, yes, we've got to fix these things. And uh, by the time they get around to doing it, though, it's too late. uh, The Roman Catholics will have councils, particularly one called the Council of Trent in the late 1500s, where they tried to address these issues. But by then, the separation happened, and it just uh, validated the intent of a, of a religious organization to exercise um, a lot of authority over the people uh, uh, in its churches. And then you had this group and many others, many, many others, men and women. But in the time, men, of course, were taking the, uh, taking the lead to see uh, the, what we call the five solas, Uh, These five phrases became the the battle cry, so to speak, of these reform movements. Uh, Sola Scriptura, the scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gracia, by grace alone. Solo Christos, by Christ alone. And Solo Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Those five statements became the rally cry for the work of the reformers across Europe across countries, across decades, um, and, and even today. There's a ring of truth today that calls us to that. So we recognize those things too. So that kind of sets the stage. Now with all that happening, let's focus our attention tonight because we're going to set the stage. We've got to turn our attention to England because that's really where we, we want to begin this story of the Baptist. And you've got to start somewhere. So let's start with Henry VIII. Uh, Henry VIII is, without a doubt, probably the most uh, written about, studied, uh, discussed, revered, admired of all of England's kings in the United Kingdom. Um, he was a man of, of great interest in many ways. His personal life is, is quite interesting, but I won't go down that detail. Go find a good uh, YouTube video or a good book or a website on his, on his life and times. He comes to power his father, Henry VII, assumed the crown in 1485 at the conclusion of the battle, uh, of a battle that ended the War of the Roses. If you've ever heard the War of the Roses in England, it's one of their big civil war kind of events, where two, two primary um, family groups fought over who was going to be king, the Yorks and the Lancasters. And the War of the Roses ends with the Lancasters, Henry VII, Taking the crown, and to help solidify the peace, as a Lancaster, he marries a York, right? And tries to keep the peace that way. That's Henry Seventh. He will rule from his, his um, taking the crown in 1485 until 1509. When he dies, his son Henry, a young man, of course, this is a, a painting of, of um, Henry that's much later in life, uh, but his son, Henry, will take the crown in 1509. And you see there, until his death in 1547, uh, he will be king. During that time span, he will marry six wives, and he will father uh, three children, uh, three children who will, live to, uh, who will live to at least assume some role in the monarchy of England. It was him in 1534 who finalized the a uh, Parliament Act that created the Church of England and separated the church in England from the Church of Rome. And they call it, of course, the Church of England. What else would you call it? Henry did not see himself, though, as a reformer. As a matter of fact, he wrote much against the Reformation. He saw himself as really the, 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 the pope of the English Catholic Church, if you will. Why do we look to Rome so far away in such a different country, in such a different culture, in such a different history? Why do we look to them for our religious heritage? Let's make our own religious heritage. And all of that was generated through, through an attempt to get a divorce. So the Church of England has that as its starting point. King Henry needed a divorce. Long and short story. Uh, the, the short version of the long story, I guess. King Henry wanted a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon, the Roman Catholic Pope would not agree to it, and so they just said, that's okay, then we'll, we'll become our own church, and by the way, he approved his own divorce, so, um, so all that began a whole series of events that happened. Um, it is interesting to note that, that Henry will practice his Catholicism until the day he dies. Uh, he's, he's, he's very much a staunch Catholic, um, the Pope of his time actually gave him the title the defender of the faith, the defender of the Catholic faith, of course. And so he, he wore that Catholic label very proudly, but he did so under the, under the umbrella of what would be the Church of England. He had no reform intentions in him at all. He just wanted to keep the peace and do what was most, most uh, beneficial for him as king and for his country and the things that they did, too. He, again, an interesting guy for sure. Henry will, will father three children by three of his wives, three different wives, um, the top there, Edward VI, who will become king for a brief while. The second one, uh, Mary, who also will be queen for a brief while. And then the third one, Elizabeth, who will serve as the queen of England uh, for the longest, by far, so 45 years. And, uh, and really took England to, to great heights of, of strength and power in the things that, um, that she was able to do. Of course, the Roman uh, Roman Catholic influence was not washed away just because they put a new label on the church building. The Church of England, still today, promotes itself as both Catholic and Reformed. It was almost as if they said, we will think like the Protestants, we will act like the Catholics. And so the church services in in the Episcopal Church still have a ring of Catholicism to them. And their doctrine is much like uh, what you'd find in Catholic doctrine, too. So we sort of get that perspective in mind because it's going to be a while before we're done with the Church of England in our storyline anyway. I mentioned a contemporary of Henry VIII is a guy named William Tyndale. William Tyndale himself was also a Catholic priest. He was ordained. He was a professor and instructor at Oxford, a man of great intelligence, knew eight languages, including biblical Greek and Hebrew. And... Uh, He began to be a voice for the call of a Bible in the language of his people, an English Bible. So in 1525, he publishes the English New Testament. It had to be completed in Germany, though, in Cologne, Germany, uh, which at least made him smell good, I guess. And they would ship them back uh, to England undercover, right? They'd be smuggled back to England and distributed there. It became a very popular book, for sure, the first time. Can you imagine— being, or having the opportunity to read a Bible in your own language the very first time. Having grown up your entire life, never read a Bible. All you've heard is a, is a priest at a church. And maybe even then it was in another language. There are some tremendous stories um, of England, particularly at Oxford, because of the, the centrality of, of what an important place it was and is in English history, um, of... People who would gather at such crowds just to hear someone read the Bible and then interpret it in English. Uh, thousands of people would show up just to hear one of their professors there read the Bible in Greek and then translate it in English. So there was a real hunger and a desire to get the Bible into a language and into the ears and the hearts of the people there. In uh, 1526, he has to leave because again, he's on the most wanted list by the Roman Catholic Church, so he leaves uh, and begins his sort of his movements around to try to stay in the shadows as best he can. He winds he winds up in Brussels as a part of those travels in um, uh, in trying to stay again, you know, undercover. As a translator, he had runners who would take his translations and give them to the printers and this, that, and the other. Quite an in- intriguing story for sure. Um, and he was betrayed. Somebody came into his circle who he eventually began to trust. And he was betrayed to the author- to the Catholic authorities who arrested him and put him in prison. He was already a wanted man, and uh, they kept him in prison for over a year, and then uh, they executed him. In 1536, October, arrested and martyred martyred in uh, Brussels, Belgium. And um, that sentence of execution was carried out to be burned at the stake. But when the fire didn't kill him fast enough, uh, one of the men stepped up and strangled him against the pole there. Now, what you can't see in this very well, probably, is is a little uh, word bubble that's coming out. And that word bubble says... Uh, Lord, opened the eyes of the King of England. His last words were a prayer for Henry VIII to be willing to accept and authorize a Bible in the English language. We know less than two years later, that prayer was answered. And indeed, Henry VIII, through a twist and turn of political events and religious events in England, authorized an English Bible in 1538 that was to be placed in every church. These are called the Great Bible because of their size, and they were often chained to the pulpit because people would literally steal the Bibles from the church. During this time, many of the preachers in the Church of England complained to their their supervisors. The people would rather me read the Bible than preach the Bible because they were so thirsty just to hear the purity of the Word of God. So. This is called the Great Bible. This was, this was work that was finished by Tyndale's associates. We'll mention two. Miles Coverdale would be the translator who had worked with Tyndale and who was given permission to complete the translation work that was Tyndale's to create the Great Bible. Another translator named John Rogers, uh, well I'll mention here in just a moment, would also continue the work. So Tyndale's work did not End with his death, and that's really a blessing to us, because of the work and the and the courage of these men. Now think about Henry's children. As time passes, of course, and Henry dies, um, his only son will become king at age nine. Of course, no one becomes king at age nine. You're just the, you're given the title and the, and the and the nice cushy chair to sit in. But, uh, but there's a regent. There's a group of men who will run the country. The group of men who, men who were over Edward VI's reign were all very much Protestant-leaning. And so this young boy, was, as a king, was brought up in Protestant thought and in Protestant teachings. And uh, when, he, when even he becomes a teenager, he, he himself starts to express some of those Protestant views. Well, you know, they've got to feel good now. We've got a young king who's going to be a Protestant king for our country for many decades ahead. Things are got to be looking good. The problem was when when Edward turned about 15, during his 15th year, um, he became ill and died. So his rule was very short, but it was very Protestant. At his death, the monarchy fell to—oh, by the the way, an update picture of of him as a teenager— the monarchy fell to his sister, Mary Tudor. Uh, we will know her in history as Mary I of England or Bloody Mary. She on the other hand was very Catholic. Her mother was very Catholic and she was raised very Catholic and she was determined to make England again a Catholic country. She wanted to reestablish England under the rule religiously of the Pope. She strove for that. She married a Spaniard Catholic, Philip II. And they just, again, the Catholics have got to be feeling good. You know, things are going well. We've got a Catholic queen who married a Catholic husband, and now we're on our way to becoming a Catholic nation again. Uh, problem is, you can see by the dates, she only ruled for a few years. She died of an abdominal tumor. So now at her death, the, uh, well, let me mention one, one other thing about her, uh, her. During her time as queen, she would execute uh, some 300 Protestants in England. And uh, why were they executed? Because they were attempting to teach Protestant doctrine. Or One of the worst crimes that she thought was trying to trans- continue this work of translating the Bible into English, which the Catholic Church was still outlawed. And so her first, her first victim was John Rogers, who had been the associate of Tyndale, a translator himself, he wrote a Bible called the Matthews Bible because he wrote under a pseudonym or a false name. And uh, once they captured him there in England, he, was, he too was executed uh, by Mary in order to send the message. Um, you know, the rest of you better stop what you're doing or the same fate awaits you. And so uh, Mary uh, continues her rule of terror. And again, we will know her in history as Bloody Mary because of that. Uh, she continues her rule of terror until she dies of a, of a tumor. Her husband, who was Spaniard and from the royal house of Spain, went back to Spain. Uh, he had no capacity to rule anything and had no legal authority to rule anything in England. So he escapes and goes back to Spain uh, where he remarries there and becomes a Spanish king. Elizabeth I, now the last of Henry's children, will step into the role. By the way, when, when Mary dies, where is Elizabeth? She has been locked away by her loving sister in the Tower of London for many years uh, because the, the fear was that Elizabeth had, a, there was enough Protestant um, momentum in England and there was enough supporters of Elizabeth that uh, they were afraid that if she were out and loose, that she might start a revolt and there would be another war to see who was going to be the monarch of England. So Mary thought it best to put her sister in the in the prison of the Tower of London. must have been an interesting day when the guard came to the door and said, Your Majesty, I'm here to let you know that your sister has died and you are now queen. She goes from the prison to the palace, uh, probably all before lunch one day, and um, quite a transition. She will rule England, of course, for some 45 years. But interesting, she never marries. There were some rumors about her and and, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, but we'll leave that to the uh, inquirer. Um, She never marries, never has children. Think it interesting, look back and think it very interesting that Henry VIII has three children who don't have any children. And as a result of that, the, uh, the Tudor dynasty, as it's called, which began with Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, a little short nine days, I think it was, of a lady, lady Jane Grey, who's that's another part of this story, but she's only a very small blip on the radar. Um, from Edward VI to Lady Jane Grey for a few days, who, who tries to be queen, uh, Mary, and then Elizabeth, and now it all ends. And then on March 24th, 1603, Elizabeth dies. What does that make it 420 years ago this month Um, and uh, she dies there this this painting done to to uh, commend that that moment and of course she dies without children well Parliament knew this was coming and they do not want another civil war they don't want another battle of who's going to be the king or queen and so they had already made plans because you see, there's, this, there's always this family tree of somebody who's related to somebody that's married to somebody else who's a cousin of somebody, that kind of thing, right? And, and they figured out that the next closest relative who would be eligible to be a king, who was also a descendant of Henry VIII, through his, uh, through, uh, Henry VII, rather, through um, his daughter Margaret, was already a king in Scotland. And that would be James. James the sixth of Scotland, from the house of Stuart. Now his, his story, you know, is, is too complicated for us to even pull into this lesson tonight. But he is su- sufficient enough to say he is the son, the only son, of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was influential in her time. She was the Queen of Scotland, while Elizabeth was the Queen of England. And those two were first cousins. But Mary, his mother, is also very Catholic. And she really has some religious and eventually civil war in Scotland because of that issue. Um, And um, so James, who has been separated from her almost since birth, uh, he was taken from her very early and uh, really never knew her as a mother other than as a title or as a name. And he grew up with more Protestant influence there in Scotland as a Presbyterian country. And as a result of that, the English Parliament thought very confidently that they've got an answer to the next King of England issue, and it's going to be a Protestant. And indeed, James had all the Protestant credentials. He had been raised under the Presbyterian um, uh, doctrine. He had been king in Scotland where there was Protestants and Catholic issues still going on, and he, he seemed to manage those well. He seemed to find what Elizabeth had done so well in England a balancing point. Elizabeth is well-remembered for what were called the Elizabethan compromises where she found a balancing point to keep everybody happy so that we don't go in Civil War of this issue. And James seemed to have all those makings. And so Parliament went to him before Elizabeth died, and... Sent an entourage to say, when Elizabeth dies, which we know will be soon, there is unity in Parliament in our country to ask you to be king. You have the credentials. You have the legal authority. Will you come do it? Well, you know, who's going to turn down that option? So, indeed, he comes. Elizabeth dies in March. Once word reaches um, Scotland, it reaches James. James. Uh, he spends some time. He's, he's uh, intelligent enough and smart enough to know you don't rush in while a nation is mourning. So he takes his time to come to England, come to London, and he does so with great fanfare. He wanted the memory of Elizabeth to fade off a little bit before he comes in. And uh, he plays his cards very well, very tactfully as a politician for sure. And he comes to London with great fanfare, great celebration, you know, that, that whole thing about a new king in town. You know, we've all seen that, right? And so he comes now and comes to become the King of England in 1603, which unites Scotland and England. James is sometimes called the first king of the United Kingdom because that was his goal, to unite England and Scotland into one United Kingdom. And of course, we know that terminology today, but he truly was the one who began that movement of getting uh, the nations of the British Isles uh, united. Uh, he is, though, of a different heritage. He's, he is uh, of the House of Stuart. Now, James walks into London, into Parliament, proclaiming the divine right of kings, a phrase that we're obviously not familiar with, uh, since I don't do much stuff with kings around our, in our country, which means he believed wholeheartedly and he exercised this, his, his uh, kingship from this perspective. That God has anointed me king, and therefore I am God's appointment for this time and for this nation. The divine right of kings. Which basically meant, if you question the king, who are you questioning? You're questioning God. How dare you revolt against the king? You're revolting against God. I mean, you hear that mindset? That was the, the, the divine right of kings. Elizabeth also believed that, but she, she was smart enough to keep it kind of low-key. James, on the other hand, was very bold about it in an attempt to put down dissenters, those who would oppose him. Whether they were Catholic or not, didn't matter. When James comes into England, he knows that there's a lot to be sorted out. Elizabeth, her last few years of her life, was not very effective as an, as an aged monarch. And there was a lot of things yet to sort out. And he, and he knew that the, that the issue of Catholic and Protestant still hung over hung over the country much. There were factions there that were very much a part of that. Another faction had come to grow up in the Church of England. And that was the generation of church leaders who said, "Well, wait a minute. The Church of England's also corrupt. Which they were. They were still doing a lot of the very doctrinal things Roman Catholic Church did. And so there began to be a movement within the Church of England. Again, part of that movement was no doubt tied to the fact that people were reading the Bible now. You had not just one Bible in English, you had several. By the time King James gets there, here's what England was dealing with. Six different English Bible translations. Quite an event when you think about a few decades earlier, there was no English Bible translation. And by 1600, early 1600s, now there's um, at least six There's actually a seventh one I'll mention in a moment. The Wycliffe Bible, the translation he had started in the late 1300s, was still hanging around. Tyndale's work, um, done through not only his own translations, but through the work of of Matthews. You see listed up there. And also the Great Bible, uh, Coverdale Bible, is the Great Bible, was still hanging around. The translation had got into the soil of Europe, especially Switzerland, And the religious leaders of Geneva created a Geneva Bible that comes out in the middle of 1550, 1560, somewhere in that range. The Church of England, under Queen Elizabeth, had authorized the Bishop's Bible, um, referring to the bishops of the Church of England. This was the Bible they were to use in their ministerial duties. So there were these six translations that all had a Protestant or Reformed shadow over them. There was also another Bible that was the Catholic. Can you believe the Catholics finally said after the Council of Trent, we will translate a Bible into English. It became known as the Douay-Rheims Bible. But it's Catholic, so I don't typically run it in with this group. So it's worth mentioning. So there's all these Bibles at hand. That's just one of the religious issues of the day. And, um, and no matter who you talk to, everybody had their favorite. Uh, kind of like today, isn't it? And in, in the process, um, James knew this was one of many issues. So what's his first task? Well, it's in 1603. His plan was in December of 1603 to call a a church commissioning or church communion with all of the bishops and pastors and church leaders of England. He would bring them to London. And there they would, he would hear from them, what are their, what are their issues? He would give them uh, opportunity to share their perspective on some of the religious challenges of England. And so, uh, that was planned. But a problem happened. A plague hit London. And just like of recent experience, uh, the plague shut down everything. Uh, people weren't able to go places. They, were, they, they printed pamphlets. And told people, you know, don't do these things, do these things, and and all sorts of things, and it shut down everything. So the the conference, which was very important, had to be moved to a place called Hampton Court, which is still one of the uh, royal palaces. And in January of that year, um, the king called in all of these men to come and and, um, share their experiences and what they thought was needed. One of the men in the group who was a Puritan named John Reynolds. That's the way they would have spelled it back then. John Reynolds said in his presentation to the assembly, may a new translation of the Bible, of course, be made that will answer to the intent of the original, meaning the original languages. Well, of all the things that were presented to the king, let's reform the church this way. Let's do it that way. Let's let's do it like they do in Scotland. No, let's do it like they do, you know, all these battering back and forth about what should be done. This was the only thing that seemed to catch the king's attention. Oh, a new translation. What an appropriate thing to do. I'm a new king. Maybe it's a good time for a new translation. And so the rest is history, so to speak. And the work of that conference and the discussions that went on for several days um, in some ways intensified the differences. Some of the men at that conference were what would be called Puritans. In the middle 1500s, there was a group of Men, church leaders in the Church of England, who said, we need to purify the church. They didn't use the word reform. They said purify. Let's just get rid of all the bad doctrine. And let's make the Church of England a truly Bible-centered, Christ-honoring church. That was their heart. And we know them today as Puritans. And the Puritan movement within the greater Church of England was a a minority movement, for sure. For sure. And some of the Puritans were even at this conference at Hampton Court. As a matter of fact, John Reynolds was one of them. And they began to make voice to the king. Here's our problems. See what the Bible says here? But this is what the church is doing. The Bible says this, but here's what the church is teaching. And they don't match. And so there was, they made quite a voice uh, in the conference. The king heard their complaints uh, and pretty kindly said, I will hear no more. Uh, the church is under my authority, right? I mean, that's the Church of England. It's under the authority of the king or the queen of England. And he said, I will hear no more. But, you know, this idea about a new translation might be worth something to investigate. And so in the process, they would eventually assign, by the end of that year, they would assign 54 translators who would begin the process of what would it mean to translate a Bible into the English language that was as close to the originals Greek and Hebrew as possible. It would take them a couple of years just to get organized and to get their resources. And uh, the translation would begin in three places. They would do translation um, at Oxford University, at Cambridge University, and then also in London. And they would work in teams. Uh, the Bible, it's in, in its entirety, plus the Apocrypha, if you know that part of the Bible, was divided up into six different translation teams, and they would work to do that. And, of course, uh, that publication came out was completed in 1611. And um, a little later in our study, we're going gonna, gonna to have some samples. I had some out Wednesday night. If you were here Wednesday night, we had a few of these sample Bible pages out. We have some here at the church. We keep them locked up in the super secret safe. Y'all know where that's at, right? No, we don't have a super secret safe. Um, we just keep them here at the church. And we'll put some of these out let you look at them as we go in, in our studies ahead for us. And um, the Church of England would take the responsibility of doing the King James translation. And when it was published, it was published by the Church of England. It was done, of course, under the authority of King James. And it was called the authorized version since it was authorized by the king. And so that Bible translation story just kind of parallels so much of this. Well, so let's look at all this in a quick summary. The Church of England, right, under Henry VIII separates from Rome. They intend to be Catholic, but now the head of the church isn't going to be the Pope in Rome. It's going to be the king of, uh, of England. So Henry takes that, that role and adapts to it pretty well, I'm sure. However, over the next couple of decades, there would be a movement called the Puritan Movement, which said inside the Church of England, we've got to purify our doctrine. It's corrupt. It's corrupt. We're not serving the gospel, we're not serving the people, we're not serving Christ in what we're doing. The Puritan movement began to grow. And again, that would be a voice that would echo to the ears of King James when he comes in. Some of the Puritan movement would come to the conclusion the church can't be saved. It is too corrupt and it shows no sign of changing. And so we're going to separate from the Church of England. They became known as the Separatists. obviously. That's a good group name to think about them. And from the separatist group, you have some who become so committed to it because, remember, in the day and time of this, all these events happening into the 1600s, if you were not a supporting voice for the Church of England, then you were considered a traitor to the nation of England because the king and the authority of the government and and the king's authority in the church were tied together. You could not oppose one without opposing the other. So those who were the separatists were considered traitors. And that's why they were sent to death. They were sent to prison. In a couple of weeks, I'll introduce you to one of those early Baptists who went to prison and died in prison because of King James and his authority. So the separatist movement grew out of the Puritan movement. Some of the separatists said, we cannot live here because we are under threat of prison or or the threat of, of death. And so we will leave England and go to Holland. And there, in Holland, which was already a religiously free community or a nation, there was the ability to practice and exercise your faith without fear or threat of government oversight or government punishment. So it became the place to go. Many English separatists went to Holland. And some of those separatists who went to Holland would come back to Holland, would come back to England rather. And they would get on this little ship called the Mayflower and come to Massachusetts. We know that group in history as the Pilgrim Fathers. They were part of that separatist movement that came out of the Puritan movement that came out of the Church of England. But not all Christians, and not all separatists rather, who went to Holland would go to America. That's where they would find their religious freedom. Some did other things. And so we're going to look at some of those others, and that sort of begins us down the path of Baptist. So next time we meet, which will be in two weeks, we will talk about the separatists go to Holland only to turn around and leave. What made them leave and what was their motivation for leaving and where did they go? So we're going to pick that storyline up there next time and we'll start to really introduce ourselves to Baptist uh, from the very earliest. And we'll start to, the trail that leads us to uh, the Baptist denomination which develops in the 1600s and will start the trail of uh, the Baptist up to where we are today. So uh, that's the weeks ahead. So uh, I hope you find it interesting, at least a good starting place for some of this. Well, let me remind you uh, again about the Weekly Connect. Make sure you have one prayer list are out too from this past Wednesday. And uh, we want to be praying for those needs. We'll come, come back Wednesday and join us. We'll take some time there to uh, update those needs and be praying for those uh, situations ahead for us. But, again, looking forward to great things ahead. Remind you one more time, too, as we try to every Sunday night, uh, praying for the Jed and Amy Appel family and their, their missionaries uh, over in uh, South Pacific, South West Pacific. And, um, and I appreciate greatly their ministry. I'm glad to call them friends. Jed has spoken here at our church in times past, and uh, their box out there, uh, all support goes directly to them. So we want to pray for them as we give to help support them in the work they do, including their nine children. So, well, let's pray and we'll dismiss there. Father, thank you for our day and our time this evening to be reminded of the generations before us who stood for your word, who saw how important it was to commit to the truth of the scriptures. And uh, May we be encouraged and inspired even to be of like mind in our generation. And I pray that you'll uh, bless our time as we uh, continue this study of the weeks ahead. I pray that you'll bless our, our week ahead as we anticipate the days ahead and look forward to great things. As uh, you continue to direct and bless our church, we thank you for your good hand of blessing here. And I pray that you'll uh, just bless the needs of our prayer list. Uh, there's many needs. Some families are, are dealing with recent loss of a loved one. and We just pray that you'll know your comfort and patience. Others, including some children, are on our prayer list because of their physical situations right now and even some with cancer. And so we lift them up and pray that you'll touch and meet those needs. Uh, We pray that you'll bless our church and its leadership as we continue to look forward to, to opportunities to preach and to minister the gospel in our community. pray that you'll bless our missionaries. And we come tonight to, again, lift up Jed and Amy and the work that they're doing uh, among an unreached people group in many ways. And I pray that you'll bless them, protect them, hedge them about, and keep them healthy and safe as they continue their ministry. And uh, give them wisdom as they uh, raise their family and see their children growing into to the work of the Lord. And I pray that you'll bless them greatly. Uh, bless our time as we dismiss. Uh, we look forward to the opportunity to uh, to see your hand in our lives and all that we do for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Lord bless everyone.